Welcome to episode 18 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mate Sata. Now, Mate is the co-founder and CMO at Blindspot, making advertising on digital billboards easy. Blindspot are building the world's first interconnected network of digital indoor and outdoor screens for advertisers without having to spend millions of dollars. Mate has worked with brands including Samsung, Uber, and Coca-Cola, operating with 300,000 screens across the globe. Before Blindspot, Mate was head of marketing at Vola, Romania's largest online travel agency, having helped the company increase year-on-year revenue by 24%. Prior to Vola, Mate was digital strategy director for Leo Burnett, helping produce content, increase conversions, and define strategy. Matt also holds the most upvoted Reddit post of all time. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Those are really kind words. Appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Well, let's start with how a small startup hijacked one of the biggest financial events of 2021, the meme stock saga leading to you purchasing an $18 billboard in Times Square, turning into the second or first most upvoted post on Reddit. Now, what a series of events. Talk me through this world story, Matt. Yeah, uh, that was a really interesting happening. So obviously, last year in in January, the whole GameStop uh, thing started happening. And I was following it just like any other Redditor uh, was. Um, and I remember seeing things kind of, you know, ramp up. Like people initially were uh, spiking the GameStop uh, stock. And then the more I waited, the more I saw, you know, general interest kind of happening. So outside of just Reddit and not just in the stock itself, because obviously a lot of people were in it to make a quick buck. But it was becoming this movement and this, you know, similar the the mantra was similar to like the crypto and blockchain community about decentralization about you know sticking it to the big man pardon my french uh which were hedge funds in this scenario um and you know we relate to that kind of messaging a lot because we built our company in order to you know bring transparency and and let basically anyone get on a billboard not just big companies so we thought why don't we get involved by putting the GameStop message or a meme essentially because what the billboard ended up saying was GameStop, uh, no, um, GME go brr, which was one of the memes that was going around, brr being the sound the money printer makes, right? Um, and we said, you know, let's just do it and let's just put a picture or a video up uh, on Reddit and see what happens. And we did that. And funny enough, we uh, I wasn't in New York then and we had someone take a video of it and they almost missed it because they got to the billboard late and we only ran it for one hour. So they almost missed the actual uh, ad. And we were like, hey, if you're going to miss it, that's fine. It's not that big of a deal because we weren't, you know, sure how we people people will react to it but he got uh, he got a video of it we tried to put it up on reddit we got um rejected by the uh, auto moderators of wall street bets uh ended up putting it on a couple of other uh subreddits eventually got picked up by wall street bets as well uh and it just exploded i remember it was saturday night i was in europe uh, and my phone was just, you know, uh, if you've ever seen the videos of Instagram influencers showing you 
um, what their phone is like if they don't cancel notifications for Instagram. That's how my phone, because it was actually vibrating off the table because all the notifications started pouring in. Um, And then I realized, okay, something is happening. I realized it's this post. And then we all went into kind of, you know, damage control because someone linked to our website. We didn't do it to actually promote ourselves initially. We just thought it would be an interesting use case. But someone found our website and linked to it. uh, And we got like 40,000 people in a matter of a few hours on the website. And it immediately crashed. Uh, We put it back up in a few minutes. Uh, and then we were trying to you know manage all that impact, and I was getting phone calls from news outlets and trying to you know figure out, okay, how do you manage this? Obviously, we love the attention, but we need to make sure it doesn't it's not damaging in the long run. So that's kind of the really short version <laughs> behind the whole story. It's truly fascinating. I mean, almost missing the ad, I think the outcome could have been very different, and your your phone would have no longer vibrated onto the floor (laughs) but i think look network effects are in full swing right and i think you know the the real uproar the uprising of the retail revolution against against the 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 big boys or the suits quote unquote i think it, it, it no greater way than just slapping it on on a billboard on times square um and obviously, look, this got people interested in buying billboards. You know, you, you said it led to 40,000 people then coming onto your platform. How did this revive interest in the industry? I think it um, what it did really interesting is that um, it gave people that would never consider billboards as a marketing channel the insight that, you know, you can actually use these in an efficient way. You don't have to be Coca-Cola or P&G or Unilever and have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars for it to make a dent. You can actually um, have a more efficient strategy when it comes to using billboards. And I've, I've, I think we had um, an impact on what eventually became uh, the crypto billboard craze, right? Because... Um, during the past year at least, and we've had hundreds of crypto clients work with us, and I'm sure hundreds that have been working with other companies um, that sell billboards because they wanted to go the traditional route. Um, so I've, I think that gave people the idea, uh, and then the crypto community kind of just realized, hey, you know what, for crypto, this is perfect because it gives our brand legitimacy that we are on a billboard. You know, we're not just online. We're not just a Discord server. We're not just a subreddit. We're not just a Twitter uh, community. Um, and we know we've heard this from landlords, you know, who who told us that right now, for example, when it comes to Times Square, we're sending the most amount of content uh, two times square out of any other company, right? Obviously, you have the big brands who are spending billions, uh, but they have the same ad that's running over and over again, while we have, you know, smaller campaigns, but from a lot of individual advertisers, anything from startups to mid-sized companies, even to large companies, because we work with, like, we work with Universal Music, we've launched Kanye West campaigns all over the world, and Snoop Dogg as well, uh, but they prefer different strategies than what media houses, you know, would normally recommend. So it's definitely a different way of looking at this space. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, 
you know, all, all, all these people coming on board now. And I think, I think it's quite an, quite an interesting, um, interesting way up, right? Because look, is, is this interest here to last? Is this growth sustainable or is it simply a, a short term influx? Well, I think it it really depends. It's obviously, we believe in it in the long run, right? Because we we've been working on this for a while, and it's not something that we thought about. Uh, you know, let's let's speculate it quickly because there's a GameStop thing. Um, the reason behind this is, I think, the more other marketing channels mature, the more you have to diversify in order to be able to uh, stand out, right? Um, if you follow uh, any of uh, the um, what's happening in e-commerce right now, you see a lot of people complain, complaining about CPMs and complaining about how um, inefficient digital marketing is becoming. And by the way, I'm a digital marketer as heart, at heart, right? So that's how I started off. That's my whole background. And I'm the first one to recommend digital marketing when you're just starting off because it's a great way to test and it's a great way to figure stuff out but sooner or later you'll ha- you're going to have to have to diversify and that means depending on what you're good at that can be something visual and if it's visual you should look into uh billboards obviously because they're 99% visual there are some that have audio uh behind them uh you can look at tv but that's usually um that's usually way too expensive for uh even for startups that have let's say 10 to 20 million dollars in funding uh with connected tv interesting things are happening so there could be something there um, we work with a partner, for example, that does programmatic audio ads, meaning you can target specific um, uh, specific regions. We've actually done campaigns where we run billboard ads and they geo-target their audio ads in the proximity of our billboards, you know, to the, just to add on to the existing campaign. So the more we see new companies coming into the space, and what's interesting is that the vast majority of them are in it for more than one campaign, you know, because I think the way you can figure out if this is a one-shot thing or if it's actually here to stay is if companies and people are uh, coming back into it, right? Um, Because if it was a one-time campaign and then they never do it again, then it's probably something that, you know, has a contextual opportunity, but it's not really there in the long run. But for us, at least, the majority of of clients come back for multiple campaigns, and we've had relationships with them for over four years already. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, for, for all of our listeners out there, I'd love to fundamentally understand the basics a little bit more of digital out-of-home advertising. Talk me through the basics, Matt, and how it works and ultimately how it makes you stand out. Right, so there's different approaches to this. Uh, so digital out-of-home, simply put, is means digital screens, right? Uh, that means any type of screen that is out-of-home and that is uh, being used for advertising. Uh, we could talk about airport screens, we could talk about subway screens, we could talk about spectacular billboards, we can talk about street furniture, like digital screens by the uh, by the sidewalks. Um, essentially, if it's a digital screen and it's showing ads, that's digital out of home. Now, traditionally, the only way to uh, advertise on those is either to get in contact with the landlord or to uh, or to talk to a media agency. And in all of these cases, they will normally ask for 
a minimum a minimum of two weeks when it comes to campaigns because a lot of the work there for them to set up a campaign is manual work right they have to set up a contract they have to uh they have to give you an account manager so you have to go through kind of the normal process when working with a media agency and that means that unless you're spending a few tens of thousands of dollars it's not really worth the hassle for them um now with those campaigns it's when you're talking those kinds of budgets it's really difficult to test things out because digital out of home is a channel that can work extremely well and this is true for any channel honestly as long as you figure out your strategy for it if you just put your logo up there it's not going to work right if you're a company that doesn't have brand awareness um and you just say your name even us right even if we would book billboards all over the world and just put blind spot on them that would be a waste of money but if we're able to uh, we're able to you know figure out what the best message to show there is if we're able to and this is what we do differently right because with us you just sign up on a platform you select the specific billboards as specific hours you want your ad to run you can add you can run multiple creatives so you're able to a b test um and you only play for what's actually being run so if people are familiar with um with programmatic so basically what facebook and google do this is the same thing but for digital billboards um and we've seen the most success even for our own campaigns and for our clients is when they use digital out of home um as a sort of assisted conversion medium so that means don't think that people will immediately you know pull out their phones and scan your QR code or go to your website and they'll buy whatever you're selling but think of it in the sense that the user journey is usually something like this people maybe have not seen your brand before they see it on a billboard uh then they see it online and they're more likely to click on your ad because they know you're a serious company uh this is already your second time you know kind of showing yourselves to the uh, to them uh or it can be the other way around they've seen your ads online then they're driving through the city they see a billboard um they actually have a need for your product so after they uh, stop at a cafe or at work they're they're going to go online they're going to search for your brand so we've seen for example a great correlation between a uh, brand traffic search and billboards because what people do is they either go directly to the website if you have a simple website or they google your name or your product which means that once you run billboards a great way to see if they're they're working for you is to compare direct and search traffic compared to the previous period right um so that's essentially what digital out of home is uh, in a nutshell it's a, it's an assisted conversion medium that can work amazingly well for brand awareness but if done correctly can work for lower steps of the marketing funnel as well i hope that answers your question i can i can talk ages about this so uh, let me know if you want me to add anything no that was incredibly comprehensive matt so thank you for that um and really with what i love about what you're building at Blindspot, you're totally democratizing access to billboards, right? We, we, all, we've always seen larger incumbents dominating the space, but with what you're building now, you know, accessing billboards without having to spend millions is truly revolutionary. Why is there such an interest to now buy these media assets in this digital age? I think the main uh the main reason is that 
first of all, billboards have been here forever, right? They're one of the first forms of advertising. And people, you know, even though they didn't catch up uh, with technology as fast as online marketing did, right? Which basically set the stage when it came to tracking and performance and analytics. Um, billboards have been here for a long while and they're kind of the established form of advertising and i feel all of us even if we work in advertising or not have are have always been aware of billboards and have always you know a lot of people have dreamed that the, the definition of success for them or for their product or for their business is to be on a billboard so it's a great way to uh, to establish that kind of milestone. And we see a lot of companies, for example, using billboards uh, to um, just celebrate certain milestones, celebrate the valuation, celebrate the Series A, uh, celebrate a certain number of employees, uh, maybe do it as an employer branding kind of stuff in which they show off their employees on uh, on the billboard. So it's it's a fascinating environment because it's so different to any other form of advertising maybe print would be the only other one comparable but print advertising is very limited and it's you know it's fallen off a cliff since uh, uh since you know journalism and press have moved essentially 99% online so i think what uh, the main thing behind uh behind the billboards is is that they've been here a long while they've kind of stood the test of time uh and because uh because of that people still still recognize them on the street and they still want to be or see their brand or see themselves on these billboards i i really like that overview and i am curious match blind spot was previously TPS Engage, but now with the same mission, same vision. What was the idea behind this transformation? Well, you know, it's a very, um, it's a very funny story, actually. Despite being marketers, we didn't focus on our brand that much in the beginning because we realized the first thing that we have to do is actually build, uh, build a product rather than focus on focus strictly on the uh, on the branding side. So what we what we did was uh, we started off with TPS Engage, which is, which is an actually an acronym for the Pole Society, which was our first name. So this is kind of our first step into this. We never felt we actually figured out the uh, figured out the naming when it came to our to our company. So this time around, we actually took the time and we worked with um, uh, a number of agencies to branding agencies to figure out what our identity is. So. With Blindspot, we realized that we loved it so much, first of all, because it's a bit of a controversial name. You know, an, an advertising company, an out-of-home company, despite being a tech company, uh, positioning itself as Blindspot, which is usually a bad thing, right? You don't you don't want to have Blindspots. But we did this for two reasons. First of all is we, we feel that we're coming from an industry's Blindspot, right? So we are the the player and the technology solution that the digital out-of-home industry did not see coming and they never thought about making stuff uh, transparent and making it accessible for anyone. And second of all, we feel that a lot of our clients feel that they are in a blind spot and we give them the opportunity to kind of shine a light on them and put them in a spotlight, which would be, I guess, the opposite of a blind spot, right? So this is the thinking behind it. And since we've done the rebranding, actually, we've seen... uh, 
we've gotten great uh, feedback on it and i feel this one is much more relatable than a traditional kind of you know corporate ish acronym based uh, business i just li- love blindspot because i feel it's so human absolutely it's all about that human element and i think you've done a brilliant job in that rebrand i'd love to hear how your early experiences at vola and leo burnett helped shape your advertising strategy today matt sure so oh those were very different experiences um so i'm, I'm gonna start with leo burnett and before that actually i worked in pr so i kind of went through all the stages that you can go uh, go through um, so what I think um, what I think is interesting there is um, I initially got into advertising and I I was a huge Madman fan and I was like okay this is the best place in the world to be in and I started working with big brands and it was so exciting for me to be a part of that world and be able to work with brands that everybody everybody knew uh, and kind of discovered that uh, discovered what it means to you know do an advertising campaign do a global advertising campaign so i got very familiar with all the corporate slang and all the uh steps you have to go through to actually do a campaign in an advertising agency uh the pros the pros and the cons uh pros being that you're part of that world and you make campaigns that everybody see and the cons being that you don't always necessarily make the best campaign because you do have a client and at the end of the day, it's their money and their budget and their brand. So you have to um, sometimes bite the bullet, even if you know it's not the best decision. It's not entirely your decision. And that was kind of frustrating for me in the long run. So I slowly moved towards a role where I wanted to have, I wanted to be able to make my own decisions. And, you know, even if it's a bad decision and I was ready to handle the consequences, but I, I, I then wanted to see a bigger part of the marketing ecosystem right because pr is a small part of marketing advertising is a small part of marketing and this i guess is a good transition to vola which is uh, so vola is an online travel agency it's the biggest one in uh, one of the biggest in eastern europe and when i got there i realized i didn't know as much about business and marketing as i as i thought i did because advertising especially working in an advertising agency keeps you very isolated from the other arms and branches of marketing. You only think in advertising terms. You only think in branding terms. You only think in KPIs that are relevant to the advertising team or to the branding team, but not necessarily to the entire business unit. And I remember after, uh, I think in the first week when I started at Vola, uh, I was talking to the CEO and he took me aside and he uh, said, okay, I'm going to give you our PL document, take a look through it. And we need to talk about how to, you know, define the marketing department, the marketing spend and all that. And he sent me the PL document and I realized I have no idea how to read this. I've never, you know, I knew what the PL document was, but I realized I don't know how to actually interpret this and how to actually draw conclusions from it. So I went back and I said, look, you're probably going to want to fire me, but I'm not able to draw proper conclusions from this because I was never exposed to this part of business. Um, but the CEO is a brilliant and is a brilliant guy. Uh, so we sat down and that was kind of my first induction into business and into doing marketing that actually has an impact to business because I had to be aware of 
the cost of the marketing team, the cost of our marketing spend, and how that translates to our cash flow, to our business. So that was, I guess, my ma- master class in doing business. And I'm grateful for it because one year later, uh, we got funding for our startup. So I kind of dis- had, I loved working at Vola, but I always compare it as one was kind of my adopted child and the other was my uh, biological child. And it's an impossible decision to make, choosing between one or the other. But I kind of had to choose the biological one and be in a position where give it my all to to my own startup and see if it works. And that this happened like four and a half years ago. So, so far we're doing pretty well. <laughs> Again, very long answer. I can keep it short if you want. Let me know. <laughs> no, I'm loving these stories and analogies, Matt. So definitely keep them coming. <laughs> I um obviously you you during that process that you just mentioned there of moving from Leo Burnett to Volo, you essentially prioritized making your own decisions. With your current position now as CMO and also co-founding where you are presently. Did you want to, or at least do you want to retain this role moving on into the future? Or will there be a point in time where, it, where you know, you'll, you'll take a step back and go, look, it's now necessary to pass the baton over? This is actually really interesting because I went through this process uh, recently. Um, so obviously in the beginning when it was just as founders, uh, everybody was doing everything and we all had to make quick decisions in order to move the business fast enough. But now because we've reached a certain size and because we have a way bigger team, there's about 25 of us now, because we've gained significant founding and we're doing a lot of business and things are you know sustainable, um, I've realized that in order to keep this growth up, I do need to take a step back and I I I always hated micromanagement, but I realized in the beginning of a startup, you kind of have to do it. But the more the more the company grows, you have to hire people that you trust. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean people with a lot of experience. Uh, I've realized and this has been our case. uh, We've hired people that had a ton of experience that simply weren't a fit for us. But we've also hired people who this was their first real job. And in a few months, they prove that they're able to, you know, make decisions and be responsible for the for their own actions. Um, And now I'm actually in the process in which I'm trying to set up teams that are self-sustainable, that are able to make decisions uh, that don't require, you know, input on every small thing, because you can't you can't really grow if you have to be the one that decides every line of copywriting, every visual uh, detail, uh, every do we do this, do we do that. You should be in a position, especially if the company grows to be big enough, in which you um, oversee the general strategy and you have people in key roles that you you talk with and they give you a quick overview of how things are going. Um, And we're kind of at that point. What I've noticed is that if a certain element is not doing well, then I'll get more hands-on with that element. And I'm kind of in a position where I'm switching roles pretty often. So if I see that SEO is not growing as fast as it could or as we expected, I'll suddenly focus on that and I'll connect with our SEO agency and our people who handle SEO in-house and kind of take that role and see what's going what's going on. And although I'm not an SEO expert, but I try to have an overview and see how I can help the team 
kind of get unstuck, right? Because something's happening there, and I I try to see if I can contribute to uh, to moving it along. Uh, same thing if we see something is happening, because for example, we treat we treat customer service as part of the marketing department in a sense, because we know that get, that gets us referrals, right? So. If we see that our NPS score is going down or that clients are not generally as happy with us as they used to, I'll jump into that and see, okay, what can we do? Is it a problem of uh, simply how we were talking to them? Uh, can uh, uh, a voucher fix this? Can we, you know, what happens if we give them a voucher at the end of their campaign and say, here's 50 bucks or 100 bucks or 500 bucks for uh, for you or for a friend? Thank you for doing business with us. Will that impact our bottom line? Will that keep clients happier? Will they come back for a third and fourth campaign or will they refer us to uh, to their friends or their uh, or other companies that they know? So I feel that in, in, in a startup and especially in a company that changes a lot during the years, even if it's a startup or not, your role also changes. So you can never, the good thing is you're never bored. The bad thing is if you focus too much on one thing, you might miss out on a lot of other opportunities that could grow your company. I'm always fascinated by how founders acquire talent. Matt. So I, I really like that, that approach there. Um, moving on slightly, you know, obviously you mentioned you, you raised previously, how did you approach funding for your startup and when did you know it was the right time to raise? Uh, right. So our first, um, our first contact with this was, uh, with Techstars because, um, that's when we kind of, um, moved from, uh, transformed what was TPS Engage now and is blind spot now, or what was TPS Engage back then and is blind spot now, was when we got our first funding from Techstars and we went into uh, their um, their program. Uh, this was in Dubai back in 2018. Uh, so what um, what happened was that form of that part of funding, uh, we needed it because we were building something entirely new. And we had to, we had to do that. Um, we had to do that in order to, in order to have, have this, have the funding in order to have time to build the product because the product was entirely new and we had to, uh, we had to have, you know, a, a very long, um, ramp in order to build up for it. So what what happened was that was our first uh, moment of funding. After that, we uh, actually talked to a lot of VCs, but we realized VCs were not really familiar with our space. Uh, you don't see a lot of venture capital in advertising. Uh, you do see a, a, a couple of VC funds that focus mostly on online uh, online marketing, but none of them actually knew the out of home space, um, or if they knew it, they weren't really interested in exploring it. So we focused. We got a couple of um, of angels to keep us going after TechStars, and a few years in, when things were going well, uh, we started talking with VC firms that were really interesting because we were doing a lot of revenue and they they liked the numbers. They didn't understand the business, but they liked the numbers. Uh, so we then realized we don't really want that kind of money because it's not, 
for us, it's not smart money. For a different type of company, it, it is definitely. But for us, it wasn't smart money because they didn't really understand the space. And the, the only thing that they could do for us was maybe refer clients. But you can get other ways uh, to to get clients rather than giving a part of your company up, right? So we had a very different approach when it come, came to fundraising. We only focused on raising money when we actually needed it rather than going for, you know, a hyperinflated valuation and trying to raise as much as possible, as fast as possible, because we felt that's not a game we can really win because we're not in a space that is very hyped up, right? So if we were in AI, biotech, fintech, uh, or crypto, probably that would have been a good strategy. But for us, it wasn't really. Uh, so we focused on just building the business, raising money when we needed. For example, during COVID, when when out of home was really hit, so you have markets that went down even seventy percent during COVID because you know less people on the streets. Obviously, less people will be interested in buying billboards. So during that year, we actually managed to to stay flat uh, while in terms of revenue, while other companies were, like I said, going down seventy percent, uh, and we raised the bridge round just to keep us going. Um, and then our revenue exploded after that. Uh, that was after the GameStop thing and after a lot of other things that we did during the past year. Um, and now um, when we look at fundraising, the first thing we look at is, is the money we're, that we're going to take actually useful to us other than investing in marketing or investing in growing the team? Is this a partner that can that has a skill set or has a network that we don't have access to? And we're going to announce something actually probably in the next month where um, we did partner with a company that is totally different from us, but is able to actually bring value to our business and do something that we're not able to. I can't give too much details on this, unfortunately, now. But when I'm, when I'll share stuff, you you I think you'll understand the type of companies that we look towards to when we try to get an investment. And I think that's true for any startup. Sorry to just to add this, I feel that you should figure out what your what your startup strategy is. If you're in a popular space that's that's going crazy right now, NFTs, crypto, obviously not the case now. But if you are in that space six to nine months ago. You should focus on trying to get as much money as possible out of it because that's the moment to do it. If you're in a space where you feel there's not that much VC interest, don't try to get go after VC money because one, it will be difficult to get. Second, you won't get the valuation that you're wish uh, that you're wishing for. And even if you get the money, they might not be able to actually help you grow your business aside from giving you money. Super interesting points there. I think. Initially, you've got to be very careful about how you go about constructing your cap table. There's got to be very clear strategic ads for each of those individual participants. Uh, and also with your idea of, look, striking when the iron's hot, right? When an industry comes into play, if it is sick, if it is cyclical and sees you know massive upticks in demand, that's when you've got to press the advantage. That's when you've got to go all in. That, that isn't when you get, when you sit back, Matt, and go, look, it's time to put our feet up and see, see the revenue come in. That's when you've got to be, you know, devising new strategies and going all in to really make the most of that change. So I can definitely get behind that. Um, I am curious, though. You've had clients with the likes of Snoop Dogg, Kanye West, Chance the Rapper, I mean, TikTok, Netflix, the list does go on 
What's your process in landing the next top tier client, Matt? Oh, I feel we have a strategy that's very different uh, from other uh, companies in the space that um, um, the traditional process here uh, for other companies and for us as well, but honestly, it didn't work that well, is the traditional uh, sales approach, right? This is anything from trying to get contacts from your existing clients uh, to uh, LinkedIn marketing or email blasting. And then nurturing the lead and then slowly getting them on a call and then, you know, trying to build from there. Um, that didn't work for us. I think we weren't, we didn't have the personality for it because what I always appreciate is companies that don't try to get you on a sales call. You know, if, uh, if it's something complex, sure, you have to get on a sales call and go through the process. But if it's, if people already know what they want, they just want the tool. And that's what we try to focus to focus on. And when it comes to big clients, it's mostly referral. The way we got Snoop Dogg actually is fascinating. Um, this was also, I guess, guerrilla marketing. Um, what we did was uh, last year, I think it was in March or April, uh, cannabis got legalized in New York. And we had this idea in which we thought, hey, it would be really funny if we put Snoop Dogg up in New York with a message on a billboard in New York up with a message, something like, it's about time, New York, right? And this was funny for a lot of reasons, because there's the West Coast, East Coast beef, because uh, Snoop Dogg is obviously known for his insane uh, consumption of weed. So there were a lot of um, reasons there. So we had this idea. Uh, we did the mock-up uh, on a billboard, and then we were like, okay, how do we get in touch with Snoop Dogg? We tried to, uh, we DM'd him. Uh, we reached out to people kind of in his network, but nobody responded. And the way we got to them is hilarious. We, uh, I set up an IMDb Pro account and started looking at movies in which he starred and looking at who managed him, you know, his producer and his manager. And we eventually found a couple of emails from people who work at Dev Jam. So we sent them, um, we sent them an email. I think we. The email was like 50 words long. That was it. It was like, hey, this is my name. This is my company. We do billboards. Uh, we want to do this for Snoop. Uh, here's a picture of what we want to do. It's on us. Yes or no. Thanks. And they responded within 40 minutes saying, this is brilliant. Let's do it. Uh, make sure you send us a picture of it. Uh, we put it up. We send them a video, a picture, everything. Um, Snoop posted it on Instagram. We then followed up, do you want to get on a call? This only cost us this much. Let me explain how we do it. You guys are going to love it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they were super into it. We got on a call, we explained everything, and then we started working on their campaigns. We launched a few, I think in a couple of weeks later, we launched his 420 uh, album. Then we launched an another one, then another one. Uh, then they connected us to other artists and other people in the entertainment industry. And that's how eventually we got Kanye as well. And from that, we got other people. So it's a, it's a network effect once you're able to get in that, in that space and you're able to do a, a, a good job, right? So that was a Snoop Dogg uh, story, which got us in entertainment. And with other clients, we do similar stuff because we've realized just telling them, hey, I'll give you a billboard for free is not that interesting unless you can show them what they can actually do with it. That's how we actually got Duolingo uh, because they did this campaign 
um, on the 1st of April, they had this brilliant campaign where they made a mock-up ad. They made a mock ad um, of people um, that Duolingo, the Duolingo owl kidnapped. For people who don't know, there's this meme going around that Duolingo is very aggressive when you don't do your lessons and that their owl, their mascot, will actually kidnap you and uh, force you to learn uh, a foreign language. So they did a very funny ad regarding that. And we love the ad and we just reached out. We found some contacts online. Again, these are not people that we know, which I think we're really good at reaching out to people that we don't know and getting them interested. And we're like, we love what you guys are doing. How about we do this? And we actually gave them a proposal of exactly what to do. Although we're not a creative agency and this is not what we sell. We don't sell creative, but sometimes you have to show the product in its actual form uh, in order to inspire people and get give them a use case. And they loved it. We did it on the same day, and then we started working together. So, yeah, that's that's kind of our approach to it. Two great stories there, Matt. I mean, I love the ingenuity behind setting up that IMDb account, finding the manager, and sending that email. But specifically with that email, you know, being very clear about your deliverables and your value adds and keeping it deliberate, you know, not being too wordy you mentioned it was a very very short piece and ultimately stuff that gets seen you know being exceptionally clear about where you can bring that value and in turn lead to those exceptional network effects that you mentioned so yeah super super cool um i'm fascinated to hear your view matt where do you see billboards in 10 years time well, it depends if we're going to, going to be living in the real world or the metaverse, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, think, <laughs> I love it. I, I think we'll still be here. We'll still be here, although maybe we can. We'll use VR a bit more. Um, there are a couple of interesting. You, I, I definitely f- uh, feel that uh, more transparency and more openness is going to happen in the industry. So you'll be able to. Uh, book a billboard in in minutes. Uh, everything will be transparent. Obviously, you'll have agencies who spend a lot of money who have preferred rates, but everything else hopefully will be out in the open. I do think we're going to have some interesting use cases. I don't know if it's going to be 10 years, but let's say 15 because I have a, a theory I really believe in, so I just want to throw it out there. Um, so maybe in the next 15 years, uh, if AR is going to become a thing, and I was a firm believer back in the day in uh, Google Glasses, if you remember that. Um, didn't catch on, obviously. But I think what will happen if we do find um, a product that uh, gains commercial success, like uh, glasses that have an AR component to them, then billboards can become something entirely different. Because imagine you can have your own custom billboard experience right so if you're a gamer you will walk on the street and you'll only see billboards for gaming companies or for for games or for related products if you're um, um, into fashion you'll only see the latest products uh, from the brands you love so it's going to be really interesting to see how ar um, gets involved in that because with vr and metaverse it's pretty obvious if presuming we're going to live in a second life kind of game uh, then you're just going to have billboards that are digitally bought. So that will be just be a replica of the billboards we see today. But I feel the, the most fascinating use case is with augmented reality, not with virtual reality. 
Um, apart from that, it's interesting that more and more billboards are becoming digital. So there's a um, um, there's a huge transition happening now uh, all over the world with static billboards being replaced with digital billboards. I think this is going to at some point it's going to stop, and at some point you're going to have a very clear. Um, a very clear ecosystem of digital billboards and they're only going to be in certain places because you do have to control kind of how many you how many you place for a lot of reasons for uh first of all because the urban aspect can get cluttered right if every place would look like times square we would all go crazy uh times square is great because it's one place right you you don't have it anywhere else so I know a lot of cities are kind of managing how many billboards you can put up. And digital is a great solution for this because you can get more out of a billboard without having to fill out as much space as you do with static. Um, obviously, energy consumption is another uh, concern, but the new billboards are extremely effective when it comes to that. Um, so I just feel we'll have a more transparent industry, uh, maybe with some augmented reality connected to it. Uh, very, uh, very well defined in terms of what you can do and you, what you can do. Uh, and I hope that we're still going to be here and that uh, it will be as easy uh, to get on a billboard as it is to, you know, run a Facebook ad or a Google search ad. The point there, I think the scarcity of Times Square being what it is, it brings a lot of perceived value and in turn leading to credibility building activities when you do see especially an underdog a underdog on one of these boards right you know if i see someone on or at least on a billboard at the airport or at times square i'd go wow now they are a big deal and i absolutely take them seriously whilst and the ability to get attention may not be as broad but i think down the channel of establishing credibility you know it's such a wonderful feat seeing something being featured on a billboard i know we obviously have um piccadilly circus over here in london matt and you know seeing seeing anything that it, it is quite a spectacle and if that was everywhere then that that spectacle would almost get drowned out moving now slightly i'd really want to know what's your biggest lesson is that you've learned from scaling blind spots so far, Matt? Oh, that's, uh, it's hard, uh, it's hard to pick one because I feel we all, the, the entire team has learned so much during this process. Um, I just want to add on something you said in, in terms of the perceived value, because um, definitely the scarcity of it is one thing. The second is the fact that this is happening in real life, right? It's not on a computer screen or a mobile screen. And even even if, let's say, 10 years from now, everybody knows that everybody can get on a billboard, the fact of the matter is you still go through some hoops to get there, meaning that your content has to be approved. Uh, you have to be a, a real company to get there. So the vetting process is pretty strict, meaning that you still have that, um, that um, confidence that companies that are on billboards are are in 99% of cases serious serious companies uh, so just the the fact that it'll be accessible doesn't mean that that uh, trust building will disappear just wanted to touch on that um, in terms of the best lesson for us I feel that for a long time 
especially being from because we're immigrants in the U.S., right? So we're uh, we come from a small market. I'm Romanian. Um, and a lot of time when you go, when you build from a small market and we did a lot of testing here and then we moved to a large market, the U.S., we initially, although we were very confident in what we were doing, we always thought, okay, this is the U.S. They know what they're doing, right? So instead of kind of following our gut, we went with what we what were considered the traditional sales tactics. So the, everything that I mentioned in terms of LinkedIn outreach, email outreach, because that was the way to do enterprise SaaS sales, right? Um, but that wasn't really our personality. And we realized it took us a while to realize, first of all, we're not that good at it. Second of all, that's not really how you stand out. That's what you do if you want to compete with people who maybe have a bigger network than you, that have more funding than you, uh, that can afford to pay more per client than you do. So we kind of try to beat them at their own game, which is never a good idea. Because if you come, if you're an underdog, don't play the same game, you know, try to play to your strengths. Um, and that's what, that's what I realized is that we do have a lot of strengths and we just need to be confident in them and be fair of, okay, we're good at this. We're not good at this. If we need to do something we're not good at, we're going to get help. We're not going to try to do it ourselves. We're going to focus on doing the things that we are exceptional at because that's where we see the be the best results and uh, the best impact. That's, a, I think, an important lesson for us, at least. No, impact is everything. So, yeah, I really, really like that, Matt. Take us out of advertising for a second. If you weren't working on Blindspot, what would you be working on? Mm, that's uh, that's a tough one. I've I've done a lot of. Um, I love consumer products. I I realized, and I love to do stuff that is consumer related. Like for example, um, I think the next possibly when I uh, when I move on from Blindspot, whenever that will be, if that will be, um, I think the next thing that I want to do is something in the um, uh, gaming uh, gaming industry. Um, not entirely sure what. It can be anything from a content uh, production company to um, to maybe a game someday. Who knows? But I just love stuff that gets people excited. Uh, as a joke, a few years back, I bought a domain that's called the King of the Internet dot com. Um, and with a couple of friends, we uh, set up a website where if you go to the king of the internet.com now for example you see that it works kind of as a royal painting you have someone there and that person is the king of the internet and we build this mechanism in which anyone can become the king of the internet as long as they pay one dollar more than what the previous person has paid so we started off at one dollar and in order to you know dethrone that person you would have to pay two dollars um and it kept going like that so that was such a fun project for me. And it actually, uh, we reset it now, but at some point it got a bit of traction on Twitter and we ended up ma making like, I think six or $700 in a day, uh, just because people started outbidding each other uh, for the hell of it. There was this like very small VC war that happened with a couple of um, LPs that were fighting to get to become the king of the internet as a meme. So I love that kind of stuff. I love stuff that gets people excited. And I think that's why that's why I like the billboard space as well, because I see the ex excitement that people get when they see their face or their bill or their company on the billboard. So anything that can 
you know, get, get people to jump out of their chair or talk about it with their friends. That's the kind of stuff that gets me excited. Um, so once I decide to move on, I'm going to probably take half a year and think about what, what can I do that will get me excited and that I can excite other people about because, you know, I, I remember this when I was, um, when we were focusing on sales a lot, this stuck with me. That someone told me that, you know, sales is actually just a transfer of enthusiasm. You're enthusiastic about your product and you have to transfer that enthusiasm to someone else. And I realized I love doing that, not necessarily with selling, you know, software or advertising, but with anything. So I try to stay in the same space when it comes to that. No, fascinating, Matteo. Really, really fascinating. Now, to wrap up the main body of this podcast, what does your perfect day look like? Right now, I try to. Uh, it's um, it's difficult simply because I'm trying to uh, set up a lifestyle in, that's actually sustainable. Because I feel a lot of the stuff that I did in the past four and a half years, especially when we were really, I hate the word, but when we were really hustling and building a lot, um, that's not sustainable in the long run, right? Of course, you can you can spend 14 hours a day working on something and you can do it even when you're older. I don't think it's necessarily related to age, but I just feel you have a certain number of years in which you can do that. Because after a while, first of all, you're not efficient anymore, even if you believe you are, even if you're saying, oh, but I'm, you know, uh, burning the midnight oil and I'm working 16 hours a day. In reality, you're actually working six even if you're spending 16 hours in front of a laptop or a computer or doing sales or whatever, maybe six of those are actually efficient. So now I just try to set, set up a lifestyle in which, you know, I wake up in, I wake up in the morning. Uh, I try to, uh, I, I try to focus on, on doing a lot of physical exercise. I have a couple of, I love contact sports. So I try to, you know, go and, uh, go and train because I always get the, a good feeling after I finish a workout. Uh, then I try to kind of be in touch with what's happening in the world without being um, consumed by it, which I feel is a very tough balance to keep nowadays because you can just go on a you know doom scrolling expedition where you end up in very weird places on the internet and feel like the world is going to hell. Where whereas in reality we're actually in a pretty good place, I think. Um, then I, I, I try to focus more on reading anything from business materials to uh, maybe reading opinions on subjects that I don't know that much about. Uh, I try to spend a lot of time with people that maybe I don't know because I've realized if you spend too much time with the same people, you end up in a place where you all agree about the same things and you are moving forward, but obviously you're kind of, limited to those opinions around you. So I always try to connect with people who I have maybe nothing in common with. And I learn a lot from those people. Um, then spend time, uh, just try to spend time outside, not spend that much time uh, at the laptop because I feel I'm in a point in which I care more about the overall strategy than necessarily implementing as much. Because once you have stuff figured out you can figure out ways to implement it you can hire people to do that you can outsource it you don't necessarily have to implement it yourself so basically trying to set up a set up a lifestyle which i actually have time to think about stuff and not just stress about implementing it 
uh, and that can change every day. I try to, I, I think I try to live pretty different days. So no day is the same, I guess, up to a point. Wow. Well, getting moving and having a good workout. I know you like contact sports, Matt, and I think any form of movement outside, whether that be, you know, going for a walk or getting to the gym, I know it, it absolutely puts me in a significantly better headspace, gives me a lot more mental clarity to go about the rest of my day in a much more effective manner. Is being deliberate about how you consume content, right? Not signal credible sources, I think is really, really important. And to your point on individuals who think the same there, Matt, I, I have a, a great quote and it's, if two people think the same, then one of them is unnecessary. And I think that could also be translated across. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, th I think it can also be translated across to the world of startups as well. You know, if you have two co-founders that think the same, then, you know, what's the point? You may as well found that business on your own. If your thought processes are going to be similar, if your outcomes are going to be the same, you need someone to counter the balance and give you a contrarian view to make you think a little deeper, not just, oh, it's going to be plain sailing and the the daisies are smelling sweet today. <laughs> For sure, 100%. And uh, to your point, uh, uh, me and my, my co-founder are so different and we had a lot of friction in the past and now we still debate on certain subjects because we have a different approach to it. Uh, and that's healthy, right? As long as you do it in a respectful way and you don't create uh, controversy around it, it's great to have people that have different opinions on stuff as long as you can eventually decide on something, right? We uh, we set up kind of a, a, a spot in which as long as it's not something uh, that can affect the business and there's no going back from it, then we have to make a decision even if we disagree. If it's something that we can come back from, then, okay, we have to agree on the best course of action. And then everyone involved kind of gets a, gets a vote in it. And then eventually we decide on what we feel is the best course. And we then agree on the, that course. But other than that, you don't have to agree on every single topic with your co-founder. I totally agree with that. Now, 24 hours before this podcast, Matt, I asked Twitter for questions they like to hear. So we will dive right in now. Andrew Young, our friend, uh, strategy and ops lead over at Meta, he has a few questions for you, Matt. So, sound good to dive right in? Sure. Andrew always has such difficult questions, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, he's uh, he, he's a good one. But um, yeah. no, he he firstly asks, what do you see others doing that you think is a complete waste of time? I would say uh, giving in or diving into the uh, hustle culture. And I think that's uh, specific to startups. Uh, I see that a lot in New York as well, in which uh, you get a lot of uh, fear of missing out, you know. So if you're not spending at least 12 hours a day uh, active, doing something, getting involved, sending emails, going to events. And obviously, Andrew is very active, but I feel he has a good balance when it comes to that. But people, a lot of people tend to get carried away with that. And I feel, I feel that just being active and just doing a lot of stuff does not mean you're necessarily moving forward. Sure, if you 
if you do a lot of stuff, you might get some stuff right, but it's way more efficient to focus on things that are actually good for you, depending on what your purpose in life is. If you're focusing more on business, on your career, if you're focusing more on mental health or on physical activity, just try to figure out kind of your top three priority and spend a few hours every day on those. But it doesn't have to be 14 hours a day because, like I said earlier, in reality, out of those 14 hours, only a few are actually efficient and the rest of them, you're only moving the needle maybe 1% and you'll be way better off just going to sleep maybe um, and waking up the next day and doing the same thing uh, with more energy and more focus. Very cool. I think we often see it a lot, individuals pandering to hustle culture when actually, look, go and get a good night's sleep. You'll be much more effective the following day rather than, you know, working um, r ridiculous hours each day and then ultimately leading to burnout. So you definitely have to prioritize rest and make sure that you are good to go for the following day. I think that's so, so important. Something that I <laughs> quickly uh, fell short to early on in my career and uh, and I'm now, you know, definitely taking a little bit more time to prioritize that that rest level so that my output can be incredibly efficient. You know, you, you mentioned on, you know, doing a lot of work, but not really moving the needle versus, you know, going all in on those top three priorities and actually ignoring the noise. So super, super important there, Matt. Andrew also asks, what are the best decisions you've made throughout your career? Well, I think the the main one was when I realized, and this is, I guess, a career decision, but it impacted a lot of parts of my life. Um, at some point in your career, you uh, have to decide if you're a generalist or if you're a specialist. You know, some people, uh, I'll give the marketing example because it's the most familiar to me. Uh, some people, after a few years in marketing or advertising, then decide, okay, I want to be a SEO specialist. I want to be a PPC specialist. I want to be a, if you're talking well, development, you focus on uh, certain uh, certain languages or you focus on uh, certain uh, specialities. Um, and at some point after a few years in my career, I realized a lot of people are doing that. And I kind of felt bad because I didn't feel the need to do that. I didn't have enough experience to be, because it does take a lot of experience to be kind of a generalist, to be a strategist, because in, in theory, a strategist is someone who knows a lot of stuff, can't necessarily implement it, but because they know stuff from a lot of different fields, they're able to kind of create the overarching approach to it. So I decided at that point that I'm not going to become a specialist, so I focused a lot more on strategy and on learning as much as possible from different fields, uh, fields of marketing in my case, but I think this applies to everything. Um, and that was a good decision for me simply because it reflected my personality. And it's one of the few times where I didn't go against myself because I've always had this kind of internal war where the war be between what I want to do and what I feel is right. And they don't necessarily always coincide. But in this scenario, I realized and there's this um, uh, there's this great book I need to remember. It's about generalists. Uh, it was really popular at some point. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up, uh, in a minute and tell you the name. I don't remember the exact name. Maybe we can put it in the show notes or something, uh, that talks about this, you know, how important it is to understand different fields, even if you don't, if you, if you're not a specialist in them, because it gives you a great overview, um, 
of how the world actually works. So I think that's one of my best decisions, you know, going with the journalist approach because I felt that reflected my personality. What is your favorite life hack, Matt? Life hack, uh, that's such, that's so complicated. Um, I think one of the most important life hacks for me, and this is might, might sound stupid, but it's really important to know how to summarize things. And in, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, people tend to over explain. And I know I can go on rants as well. So I'm, I'm the first to admit that as you have seen and other people have seen in this uh, podcast. Um, but I feel it's important then when, when you have to, you need to be able to explain a certain topic, what you do or what you want from someone in a few words, in, in a tweet, if you will. Um, and that has helped me so much in my life because not a lot of people are, are able to get to the core of something in an efficient way, in a respectful way, in a way that will, uh, you know, help the other person understand uh, what you need from them and what their benefit is to that. And I think the best example is the one I mentioned earlier, the Snoop Dogg scenario, right? If I would have written a very well thought and but long email to his team, they probably would have skipped it because in in their case, they, you know, need to move fast. That's, I mean, that's a personality there. They do a lot of stuff. It's the entertainment industry. Everything has to happen overnight or over the next hour. So I was kind of mindful of that. And I tried to try to summarize as much as possible what we want and what we do. And that's the reason I think that worked in our case, not just because we put them up on a billboard because they were getting billboards from their sponsors and partners anyway. But the core of it was that we were able to, you know, express what we wanted in, uh, in 50 words or less. Uh, so I think once you get the hang of that and once you're able to do that, that changes your life so much. And people sometimes will be shocked about uh, how little I will talk about the subject simply because I feel if you're able to talk a little, uh, if you're able to get to the core of a subject but in just a few words or a few phrases, that means you really understand the subject. If you have to talk for hours to explain a simple point, that means you don't really understand that topic. So I get this, this would be it, although this was a long answer. And this does not prove my point, but I feel summarizing stuff is really <laughs> important in terms of going ahead uh, in life. <laughs> no, I love that. And do you know what? I think that's got to be one of the best answers. Uh, you know, being good at summarizing things, being good at summarization. I know Mark Twain has an excellent quote saying, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead and it's so so true it's very easy to just blurt out an answer and keep on going and going and going but actually it's incredibly difficult to cut through the noise give you that signal and then move on not waffling on and adding all the frills instead cutting the fat and ultimately getting to the point is super super important so yeah really really like that one Matt now I have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guests. So last week we had Kyle Harrison, partner at the VC firm Contrary, on. And their question is, if you could send a letter to your 20-year-old self with only one sentence or piece of information, what would you say? 
Well, apart from the obvious, uh, buy Bitcoin or Apple stock, <laughs> which I think <laughs> a lot of people would say. So let's, I'll, I'll just skip the, fi- obviously, the obvious financial advice, right, that you could throw out there. Um, you know what I would put there? I think I would put something like live abroad, simply because um, it took me a, it took me a while to build up the courage to, uh, you know, leave my comfort zone and start start living in different countries. So I lived for a while in Dubai. I lived for a while in in Seoul in South Korea. Um, been living in New York, uh, moving to Miami this year. Uh, and I feel that changed me a lot and that changed me in a very positive way. Like I'm in a much happier place with myself. I feel I got a, a lot more focus out of it. I feel I understand the world better. So I wish I would have started doing that a bit earlier. Um, although there's always a right time for it. So maybe if I started too early, it would have been a bit overwhelming. Uh, but I would say that just to make sure that maybe in a parallel universe, I don't take the leap. So I would send that letter to myself just to make sure um, that uh, I do take the leap and start living abroad. I really like that, exposing yourself to that optionality. And I think, you know, I've, I, I've never lived abroad personally, but I think seeing different cultures, immersing yourself and, you know, seeing at least what it has to offer can yield huge, huge outcomes. And I know it absolutely did for for your sake, Matt, with with what you've built presently. You know, it, it's truly, truly wonderful to to hear. And ultimately, you know, you're 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 onto building something really, really exceptional. So I I, I can't wait to chat once more and uh, see where you land, my friend. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, this was this was a pleasure. By the way, just so I uh, add on what I was saying earlier, the book I was mentioning is called Range, uh, Why Journalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's written by David Epstein. Wonderful. I will have to give that a read. Um, highly recommended from yourself. So it's got to be a good one. <laughs> well, listen, Matt, this has been a real joy to do, diving into the world of advertising and the future of media. And really glad we got to do it. Same here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invite. This was a pleasure. I hope I know I gave a lot of long answers despite my summarization <laughs> mention. Uh, but yeah, this was an absolute, uh, absolute pleasure chatting with you, Alex. Ma-